For the week of August 6th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 625, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, or actually at Fairhaven, the rehab center where my mom is at right now, thank you for all your questions and concerns about how she was doing. Uh, I'm Michael Giltz. Well, I hope she's, she's doing better. That's right. She progressed from the emergency room to ICU to a regular hospital room all in six days. And on last Friday, they sent her from the hospital to Fairhaven, which is a skilled nursing facility where she is there for rehab so she can get stronger and come home. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I need to get stronger. I am exhausted. Why? I'll tell you, just staying up late. Uh, You know, Taylor Swift is in town here in Los Angeles playing six nights at SoFi Stadium, where the Rams and the Chargers play, where the Super Bowl was held a couple years ago. Are you going to see Um, Taylor Swift night after night? What's happening? Oh, no. I'm not going to see Taylor Swift. No, no. I'm just staying home, and I'm just watching it on TikTok. Oh, oh, everybody's everybody's posting every like five minute. How how long can the clips be? Uh, it's not clips. They're all live. So oh. there are there are people posting live, and then there's others posters of posters. So there's there are some people who take the live streams that people are kind of broadcasting from inside the show from all different types of seats, um, and uh, they are rebroadcasting them as on their own live streams, and you can sit there and watch the entire show every single night. (laughs) Well, you should. It's unbelievable. And I have to say, more power to her. You know, she really, three and a half hour show, 44 songs. I mean, it's, it's, gymnastic what she's she's it's like calisthenics it's i no wonder she's sweating at the end of it but you know i I, i'm not necessarily anti-taylor swift i i have you know i'm neither here nor there uh but i'm not necessarily a swifty as if you're not with taylor swift you're against her yeah well i apparently that is true i i I was gonna make a joke that i didn't have to make any any uh, friendship bracelets to go to any of my shows um but uh i have to say she here in Los Angeles alone has affected the gross domestic product of Los Angeles by $300 million. And she has hired 3,000, well, not her personally, but SoFi had to hire 3,000 people. So there's 3,000 temporary workers that are, have been hired. All the hotels are sold out. Yes, and big hit tours and big hit Broadway shows and big hit things like that generate a lot of money. The arts are a great investment. And so the Fed just released a report that literally not only has people dancing around in Seattle generated a seismic activity during one of her concerts, uh, but that she is actually, that tour, which will ultimately, they think- The Eras Tour, yes. The Eras Tour, $1.4 billion. It's been so successful that yesterday uh, in the New York Times, front page story about just how financially successful, but more to the point- that they haven't seen this kind of mania or the way that you can act. She's actually managed to gain the mind share of so many people since Michael Jackson and Madonna in the 80s. She's gained the mind share. What a nebulous stat. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, in less exciting news, uh, two notes. One is about uh, the actor Angus Cloud from Euphoria who died recently. His mom says she wanted people to know and make clear that he did not die by suicide, according to her, despite well-known struggles with mental health and the death of his father a week earlier. She says he was in a positive frame of mind. 
and that it was an accidental overdose. It doesn't make his death any harder, but she wanted people to know that, though I'm sure she would encourage people, if you are feeling like self-harm, you can always dial 988 for help. That's a national number in North America, 988 for help. Uh, and always reach out because there's somebody who wants to help you if you are struggling with mental health. It's an illness, just like high blood pressure or anything else, and it needs treatment, just like postpartum depression, where they finally have a pill to treat postpartum depression. You're not a bad mom. You're dealing with an, an illness, a biological illness that needs treatment. So, you know, reach out for help. And, in and by the way, though, that's true in, in the UK and France and Spain. I think in Japan, there's also a number that you can call. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I can't speak for China, but, you know, one thing to point out, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm older now. I don't, I don't do all the drugs I used to, uh, me and Keith, you know, <laughs> Richards. Uh, no, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is all these pills coming in from all over the world they're not as safe as, as when you and I were kids, Michael. We used to be able to take any pill you mean we wanted. Illegal drugs, illegal drugs. Well, I don't know well, what Angus yeah. Cloud was doing or you know what was going on there. Illegal or illegal drugs? They might have been prescription drugs. I have no idea. But yes, you're right. The the drugs are much stronger, and unless you know the source, they're probably not. You can't assume that they're safe. That's the key. That's really what I wanted to say is unless you know the source, and unless that source was a pharmaceutical company, do not take the, a pill. Yeah. Because it's probably laced with things you don't want it to be laced with. And also morally, you're supporting a violent, usually a violent, corrupt organization. When I smoked marijuana in college, it was only from local growers in Gainesville, Florida, people who did not deal in any other drugs. They smoked, they, they grew their pot, they sold it to make a little money, and they smoked it themselves. So you knew you were not supporting some cartel that was killing or corrupting the police force and law enforcement. You knew they weren't pushing other drugs on children. You could feel relatively good about it. That was my self-justification. And I stopped smoking in New York because I didn't have any source that I knew that could be trusted in the same way. There we go, our little drug. Not just say no, just say no to stuff you don't know the source of. <laughs> Not exactly <laughs> what Nancy Reagan was pushing. And in other sad news, a film editor, Oscar-winning film editor Arthur Schmidt just died. We just found out about his death, I should say. Literally. We're recording. As we're recording. That's yeah. right. We're recording on Monday, August 7th. He died over the weekend. He was 86. He won the Oscar for Back to the Future and uh, cast, no, 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 for Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Forrest Gump. Those are his two Oscars. He had a long collaboration with Robert Zemeckis, as that might indicate. He also worked on the Back to the Future films and Castaway and his other great movies, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter. Uh, Fandango, a lovely little film that was Kevin Costner's, one of his early breaks that came out the same year as Back to the Future, the comedy Ruthless People. So he really had a, a range of you know skills there doing action and comedy and drama. Uh, the Last of the Mohicans, a terrific Michael Mann film. So uh, he had a varied positive career. So uh, sad to see him go, but you can celebrate his life by watching one of those movies. But wait. Don't start watching Back to the Future until you've listened to our podcast. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are pleased to announce that talks are resuming between the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA and the AMP. Oh, wait, actually, wait, wait, wait one minute. No, no, strike that, strike that, no pun intended. They are talking, actually, but they're talking about how they're not talking again. Oh. So, yeah, it's just, I guess they're talking 
not to each other. I don't know. It's going to be a long strike. One reason, they can't even agree about what they're arguing about. They don't even know. They're like, wait, aren't we talking? Wait, no, I thought (laughs) you said. uh." In other news, Lizzo is accused of fat shaming, which makes our head spin. And the soap Days of Our Lives has a new co-executive producer after a cast uprising. In video streaming, nothing says success like almost being canceled, whether you're a royal or a cop show. And by royal, we mean that in the royal sense of the word. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at some of the key areas of discussion in the actor strike regarding AI, that's artificial intelligence. Many people say I am intelligent, but they think that I am artificially intelligent, meaning not very intelligent at all. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, Michael was going to fill it. He's, you know, our entertainment journalist extraordinaire. He's going to fill us in not only on last week's box office, but how bad my artificial intelligence joke was just like a minute ago. It was pretty bad. (laughs) But we are looking at box office around the world. We have a link to Comscore in our show notes. This week, I will provide more comprehensive links to some of the many areas where we draw box office information from. We sort of explained last week how we do it and all the different sources. Uh, but my mom in the hospital and rehab and sepsis, uh, I lost track and didn't really do a good job. So I'll try to get that information in there this week. But uh, basically what we do is we say, what's the new total box office for a movie? It's $500 million this week. That's its worldwide gross as of today. Then we look at what its total gross was last week at this time. And if it was, say, $410 million. Then we say, okay, in the last seven days, this movie made $90 million. That's all we do. We look at the total worldwide gross and we subtract last week's total worldwide gross from this week's. And that gives us the amount of money the movie has made in the last seven days. And when we do that, we're looking at box office around the world from Comscore and Box Office Mojo and the trades and you name it. The number one movie is, of course, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. million this week, $1 billion, $31 million worldwide. Every sort of record continues to fall. At number two around the world is Oppenheimer, another $150 million. This is at $550 million worldwide. It's turning into one of uh, director Christopher Nolan's biggest films ever. It's the top grossing movie in the World War II genre of all time, not adjusted for inflation. But there's all sorts of cool records. If it wasn't for Barbie, we would be raving about Nolan and the massive success of Oppenheimer. This is terrific. A three-hour serious film for adults about a complex subject that is a blockbuster. They're just going kicking themselves because they can't do a sequel. Uh, number three around the world is Meg 2, The Trench, the shark movie of whatever that is, $142 million worldwide, including a very uh, healthy $53 million in China. So that's the second biggest box office market in the world, and Hollywood is glad to see that. Enjoy that, but it's gravy. At number four around the world is another film in China, Creation of the Gods Part One, a Chinese fantasy based on a classic uh, novel or classic myth, I should say, like Journey to the West or Robin Hood in, in America. It's something that everybody knows in, in, the, in the Western world, Robin Hood for us and Journey to the West, or in this case, Feng Xian Yan Yi, uh, this story about creation of the gods. It's part one of a trilogy. It made $84 million this week. It's at $240 million worldwide. Then another movie, it didn't open in China, but it's previewed in China on Friday and Saturday nights. I believe those are the nights. It's a crime drama called No More Bets. 
and it's only in previews, but it made $55 million this week. That's even more than Meg 2 The Trench made over its whole weekend. So that movie is on fire. If the word of mouth is good, it's going to be even bigger next week. But that's off to a great start in previews. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Great reviews for this animated reboot of the Teenage Turtle franchise. That made $52 million. Back to China, where that breakdancing film One and Only made another $47 million. Quite a good hold. It just passed the $100 million mark. People in China said it was a disappointing beginning. I don't know why. I don't know why they would expect a breakdancing movie to open bigger or what its budget was. But it seems to be uh, holding well and doing well with audiences. If you know more about its budget, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can also follow us on Twitter or X, formerly known as Twitter, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. But Michael, you mentioned Barbie and how well it's doing. Warner Brothers, uh, you know, it's past a billion dollars, as you mentioned. Warner Brothers said that it, it has never seen tickets sell this fast, like this many tickets sell. In it hit $1 billion dollars in 17 days. To put that in perspective, that's faster than the last Harry Potter film, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, a wildly anticipated climax to an extremely successful franchise. 17 days, whereas that Harry Potter movie did it in 19 days. Only 53 movies in history have grossed $1 billion. Pretty soon, the top 100 films of all time will have grossed at least $1 billion or more. And there are four movies in the $1 billion club that were directed or co-directed by women. Barbie, Frozen, Frozen 2, and Captain Marvel. And, you know, two of those are live action, major launches to a franchise with big budgets, Captain Marvel and Barbie. So uh, that's pretty impressive to see. Women will deliver when given the opportunity. Yeah. No, and that doesn't mean funny. Barbie isn't going to come to streaming, does it? Uh, and during their earnings call, they're like, oh, Barbie's going to come to streaming. Uh, but not too soon. We love, we, we really believe in the motion picture window. Let it play out. Uh, go on into PVOD. Take it through the windows that have worked forever said David Zaslav, who's found religion when it comes to Windows. When it goes on Macs, it will have a good impact in the fall, he says, sometime in the fall. So yes, it'll come to streaming, but we're not going to rush it. They've discovered it's fun to make lots of money. Yeah, go figure. And he actually said, the old model worked just fine. Yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah. And Oppenheimer's being held over in IMAX. And they're, and they're advertising, like, see it now in the big screen in the IMAX format. They're touting the fact that this is a movie you really want to see on the big screen, especially in IMAX. It's being held over for another two weeks. It's like the return of Panavision and CinemaScope when they wanted to compete with TV in the old days. They said, it's a wide screen. So they're doing that again. In fact, Barbie and Oppenheimer is such a one-two punch. There was a little movie my mom almost went to see called The Miracle Club about a group of Irish women who go to Fatima. It stars Maggie Smith and Laura Linney and some others. It made like a, almost $2 million, but old people liked it. The word of mouth was good. And, you know, it, it could have played and played for a while, but boom, <laughs> Barbie and Oppenheimer just rolled over everybody. So their studio says, you know what? On August 18th, we're going to put it back in theaters, about 200 to 300 screens. So a pretty solid re-release pretty soon after the movie. I mean, it just left theaters, you know, just a week or two ago. So I think that's something I assume 
that's a lot more uh, plausible and easy to do in the age of digital, right? If you had to ship oh, those prints back out, that's absolutely. already a big expense, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, very often they'll, they'll keep, uh, they'll say, you know what, hold on to the print because we're going to, you know, ask you to play it again in four weeks or six or eight or And that's or a two big months. pain, right? But then, but then you've got to, you know, not every, you have to wonder like, oh, geez, where are they storing that print? And are they really storing it properly? And uh, what if they lose it or lose one of the reels? And, you know, it's... We'll get to back, back to box office in just a second, but that raises a question I emailed you about, and that's Oppenheimer. We were getting okay. word that the print of Oppenheimer was like the max. You cannot have an IMAX movie longer than three hours because it's just, you literally have to be three hours. You can't be three hours in one minute. It's so big. And we were hearing a number of technical issues for the seven, I'm sorry, that's when you're showing it in the 70 millimeter format. Correct. And yes. we were hearing that at those theaters, there were some issues with playback and that it was yes. falling apart and that it wasn't just a one theater issue. It was happening at multiple theaters. Tell us about that. Well, uh, you know, they're still looking into it, but, you know, the, my gut tells me that, you know, when you use this equipment once every four years, yeah. you know what? Yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't always work. I'll, I'll say this. There was a time when I worked at DTS, which, you know, is kind of like a Dolby competitor. You know, they started with sound. Now they're a technology company. Uh, DTS worked off of time code on a proprietary time code that was on a film print. And then it played and sunk up with a CD, DVD, and played the audio through CD quality, DVD quality audio through the speakers. Well, that's the kind of the same process that you have with 65 millimeter or 70 millimeter film is the audio is actually on the film print. So all of these audio drop-offs and things like that, these film heads, and I remember at DTS, we, there were only a, a handful of them left. And we were, and when, when they were getting rid of film, everybody said, should we save these film heads or should we just throw them out or should we recycle them? What do we do? I was like, you know what? Save them. You never know when people are going to, we, we all said, hey, you should save some of these. And sure enough, when Hateful Eight came out, Along comes the studio going, um, you don't happen to have any, um, any uh, 70 millimeter audio heads, <laughs> do you? And sh yeah, as a matter of fact, we do. And the reason was we didn't throw them out. But at the same time, that equipment is now aging. Therefore, you have this issue. Um, go. I am point. going to see Oppenheimer, uh, thanks to IMAX. Uh, they don't know whether it's going to be a, a film print or a digital print because I'm, I'm seeing it at the IMAX theater uh the imax offices mm -hmm. uh because tickets are sold out and i can't get any they're harder to get than taylor swift tickets somebody quick stream it on tiktok <laughs> um it's but I, they they said to me hey we we don't know whether it's going to be filmed because we have to see whether our film people are available <laughs> <laughs> well you let us know what you think of the movie when you see it back to the box office tom cruise doesn't want you to forget the box office and he's probably thinking god Top Gun Maverick seems like a thousand years ago because Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 made another $45 million. It's about to cross the half billion dollar mark, which would be great if it didn't cost $290 million to make. It's not going to get anywhere near the $900 million it needs to be a success. I'm not sure how they're working out that budget for Dead Reckoning Part 2, whether some of this are sunk costs or whether they're going to determine that movie didn't cost as much as you might expect or what's going on there. But they do have part two coming, uh, but this was a very expensive movie to make thanks to all the COVID delays. 
and they saved it for theaters, and he's sure wishing the movie would be doing even better than it is right now. The same Disney is thinking about Elemental. Made another $30 million this week. It's at $425 million worldwide. Again, it's proving to have some legs. Audiences are liking it. It's doing really well in some territories. So it will be a valuable addition to their library, uh, but it's not hitting the $600 million they were certainly hoping for. That would have tripled its budget. But it's doing a lot better than Haunted Mansion. Poor reviews and it seems like poor audience response. That made another $27 million this week. It's at $60 million worldwide. Then we have the horror flick Talk to Me from Australia. Uh, That's an A24 release here in North America, at least. $17 million this week. It's at $31 million worldwide. But that doesn't include some Middle East countries. One of them rejected the film, not because of the content of the film, but simply because one of the actors in real life identifies as transgender. Not the character, mind you, but the actor. And so they're like, we don't want that movie. But you know what? They probably don't show a lot of Woody Allen movies either, do they? (laughs) Back to China, where Chong An San Wan Li... This is a three-hour or nearly three-hour animated epic, a period film. It cost six, uh, not cost, it grossed $16 million this week. It's at $230 million worldwide. And Tom Cruise is not happy about this, but Sound of Freedom, the Jim Caviezel movie, it's still basically only in North America, though it's booked a lot of other countries. It made $15 million this week. It's at $164 million from that one market alone. It's making more money than Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1 in the number one market in the world. So looking at the rest of the charts, I'm looking for any new movies that we have. Um, The Moon is a South Korean drama about stranded astronauts that opened up to about $4 million. And that's about it for new movies. And we really do cover the world. There are 17 films from the U.S. on our chart. Seven are from China. Two are from India, including one in Hindi and one from the Telugu market. Uh, The Indian film is... Where are you? Uh, Yes, it's uh, Araki Ararani Ki Prem Kahani. That's an Indian Hindi rom-com that made $10 million this week. And then there is Bro, that Telugu film that we feel is, is, it's a remake of a Tamil film, and we think it's ripe for Hollywood remake, though I haven't heard about a deal being made yet. Come on, Hollywood, get on the the stick. That grossed $3 million this week. It's at $13 million and counting. So it's cool to see movies from all over the world on the charts. But we're not going to be seeing movies for much longer if the strike continues. Yeah, but can, before we get onto the strike, can can we just talk about a couple things? Well, first of all, let's talk about this. How this is the first weekend where you have movies coming out. You got the Meg Two, the mm-hmm. Trench, and you also had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, which had an all star cast, and they both did well. They both did well. No cast promotion, of course. So that would you know a lot of people were paying close attention to how those films did. I think it's over. I mean, I understand the uh, the. Uh Concern. infrastructure for movie premieres and promotions of the award season and how there's a lot of different people who depend on that, like fashion people, hair people, the fashion industry who, who just, you know, from the advertising of them appearing on the red carpet, the catering, all the sorts of stuff that go into all these award seasons and movie premieres, and they matter. And there are a lot of jobs on the line, but I do think it's overrated for a lot of movies. Dune 2, I don't think you need the actors running around promoting it. Meg to the Trench, I'm sure it would have been good to have Jason Statham out there, but you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I think they sort of sell themselves. They're ongoing franchises. They're pretty basic movies, and sort of, and certainly in terms of Meg to the Trench. So, 
Yeah. You want to promote a smaller movie, then you really need the actors. You got a big franchise that sort of sells itself. I think it's a little overrated. Well, uh, Meg 2, you know, there was some talk about, oh, in the, in the U.S. it opened to $30 million, and, and the first movie opened to forty-five. Yeah, here's how I saw Meg 2 the first time. Oh, no, Meg 1. Meg 1, the first Meg. I had movie pass, okay? I only ah. went to see that movie because I had movie pass. I was like, well, I have to use it. Well, I guess I'll go to I there you go. see this Meg movie. Uh, so if you want to know how, how movie pass affects the box office, that would be how. Now, also— uh, you know, you look at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It made fifty-two million dollars this weekend worldwide, and everybody's like, "Woohoo! This is great! It made twenty-eight million dollars in the U.S. This is fantastic!" And you're like, "What? It, it didn't make a hundred million dollars? That's when you jump up and down." But it got a great reviews. It got great here's reviews. Here's the difference. Uh huh. That movie cost seventy million dollars to make. It didn't cost. $290 million to make when you have something like that, $300 million for the Indiana Jones movie, and then it makes $368 million, you got a problem. So I think um, the cost of these movies is going to start coming down based on the fact that the studios themselves are going to start saying, we can't make these movies. For well, that's you, when you make something like Meg. Uh, you know, with Jason Statham, you're not spending it. Actually, Meg 2 costs a little bit less than Meg 1, which is a little unusual, but it costs $130 million, which I thought, wow, that seems like a lot. But the first one costs like $140 million and, you know, it made his money back. So here they are again. They tightened the budget a little bit. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a, you know, a not a low budget animated film, but you got a voice cast. So that's definitely less expensive than live action actors. And yeah, those are the type of films that get made for a price. You're not going to make Indiana Jones or Mission Impossible for a, a, a bargain price. It's just not going to happen. But that's why you make movies like Meg and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because those are those mid-budget movies that really deliver for Hollywood, really bring in audiences, and they really, really matter. And uh, you're not going to be making anything, actually. You're not. So, okay, just, just go home. You're not making anything. But the good news, I got some good news for you, Michael. Mm-hmm. When you're not making all of those movies, you are saving money if you are a movie studio. Yes, David Zaslav boasting, we saved $100 million because of the strike. It's like, oh, genius, dude. Oh, by the way, only during the first two months of the writer's strike, not even right. not even the actors. So, Right, but uh, production was shutting down everywhere. Yeah, you can save a billion dollars if you want to. Don't make anything. You know, great. You've saved a bit. We got a billion dollars in our vault because we didn't make any movies or TV shows. What? Everybody's hold on, hold on. I'm just writing Max? that down. Yeah. I'm just writing that down. Don't make movies too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you'll okay, save perfect. tons of money. You just won't make yeah. any money either. So what a ridiculous, cynical, short-term thing to say when you're talking to a Wall Street. Anybody who's stupid enough to think that's some great news that you're not making product to sell later is an idiot. But Never un- overestimate the intelligence of people buying stock. Because you are gambling. <laughs> you heard it here first, people. Go to, go to Vegas, people, if you want to gamble. If you want to invest long-term, who's like a... Anyway, never mind. But, you know, anybody's playing individual stocks, you're just playing. You're just gambling. And you may win sometimes, but you're going to lose sometimes, too. And anyone who thinks not making movies and television shows is a great idea for Warner Brothers is out of their mind. Well, and anybody that thinks this strike is going to be over by September. Well, you sort of implied that. I read I your October. newsletter. Don't people read Celluloid Junkie newsletter? Where can they subscribe? Uh, if they go to celluloidjunkie.com slash newsletter, 
Uh, there is a form there you can fill out, and uh, we'll send you one one uh, newsletter a week if we're lucky, <laughs> if we can get yeah. it out the door. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's. I said October was when optimistically people could maybe think about this strike ending, and everybody's like, "It's not going to end by October." I was like, "Wait, whoa, whoa!" I said, "Maybe no by earlier, October. no earlier." No is what earlier you to say. There's not a chance in hell of it ending before October, is what you said. But at right. least they're all talking. But, well, yeah, it depends on how you find talking. If you mean getting in a room to talk about how they're not talking and why they're not talking, then they're talking. And if you if you mean getting in a room where the producers, the networks, the 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 movie studios basically say, hey, we have the same deal as we had before to take it or leave it deal. It's the same deal that we gave the DGA. So you're going to have to live with what they negotiated for you. Uh, then, yeah, you're absolutely correct. They are definitely talking. <laughs> right. Well, one thing I liked is that everybody knows about how the talks had pre-talks and then they collapsed. The WGA said in advance, we're very cynical. They love to announce they're going to go back to the table, and then they show up with actually nothing new, and then we are pressured into making a deal. It's not going to happen this time, and that's exactly what happened. Boy, am I in the, a, uh, am I in the WGA and sag after side in this strike. I guess I always would be to a degree, but once info leaked about the collapsed pre-talk talk, uh, the WGA said, fine, we're gonna t- we weren't going to say anything, but since you're leaking, we'll tell everybody what we were talking about. And that's well, the exactly funny thing is, said. the WGA said most of the most of the conversation was about how we shouldn't be leak leaking anything <laughs> yeah. to the and, press. And then, so they then the WGA says this thing like, okay, well, we weren't going to say anything because that was the one thing the AMPTP wanted that we could comply with, which is don't leak anything to your members. But since they're leaking to the press, we may as well tell you what we talked about. And then the AMPTP comes back and says, wait a second. We told the press everything. We only told the press everything we wanted them to report. <laughs> so it's like, what? Well, then you're leaking. <laughs> exactly. Well, I like this strategy. The WGA said, fine, you don't want to meet or you're not willing to meet and address all our concerns. Well, we've got some new demands. How's that pressure for you? First of yeah, all, they, they, they upped the ante. They yeah, said, they're like, oh, only- you're not going to talk to us? Guess what? We have newer demands. That's the way to do it, people. One of them is a healthcare demand. They're saying, look, because we're striking, it's going to be harder for our members to qualify for healthcare, which they need to make about roughly 42000 a year if you're in the WGA from your writing work in order to qualify. And they said, well, we're going to have to give people extra time for that. Also, even if we make a deal, we are going to include in that deal a provision that we are going to remain on strike until you sign a new deal with SAG-AFTRA. We are standing shoulder to shoulder with SAG-AFTRA, and that's a great move to put pressure on SAG-AFTRA to say the same thing. We're not signing a deal. We may sign a deal, but we're not going back to work until you make a deal with this other union. So they're saying, look, we'll make a deal. If we like it, we'll sign it, but we're not going back to work till they get a deal as well. And the LA mayor, she's like, come on, you're going to make a deal. So just make a deal already now. How did that play? Yeah, um, they basically they say, "Come on, come on, get involved in the negotiations. Come on down. <laughs> if you can cut a deal, you're you doing better than us. Go get Taylor Swift involved." And when um, you're talking but, about, I'm oh, sorry, you had something to say. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you should really be reading Jonathan Handel over on Puck because basically what he's saying is, look, this is a once in a lifetime. You know, it happens. It happened in 1960, and it's set 
the tone for decades. That's when royalties were first uh, won back right. in 1960 when there was a dual strike. So this is a moment that the WGA knows is not going to come along for decades. There's not going to be another work stoppage uh, vote. The, the WGA isn't going to say, hey, remember when we struck three years ago? Let's do it again in three years. No, they're going to say, just try and cut a deal. But part of the problem is for years, for decades, the WGA cut deals that were like for DVDs. They got no money off of DVDs. And when they finally got residuals for DVDs, it was on a model that was uh, based off of VHS, which cost infinitely more money to produce. So they basically, the studio said, we'll pay you royalties on DVD, but after we subtract all the costs. And what, what, what are the costs? Well, let's see what it costs to do VHS. Well, no, VHS. It costs Just like musicians got screwed on compact discs, people in the yes. movie industry got and they never got access to the data. They never found out how much DVDs and Blu-rays were actually grossing for the studios at certain years in the conversion when people were buying all their libraries over again on Blu-ray and DVD. Studios were making more money from renting and selling Blu-rays and DVDs than they were at the box office. But God forbid you try to find out exactly what they were grossing unless they wanted to tell you this was a big dark secret. They would say the number one DVD of the week is this, but they wouldn't tell you what it was actually making. And that's what's happening now. They want access to the data so they know exactly what is being a success in streaming. And whatever template, whatever deal they make for the WGA and SAG-AFTRA, that's going to be a template followed all over the world by other unions, which is why there was a great story that we linked to in our show notes about Korea. There's an actor and the current president of the Korea Broadcasting Actors Union. They're in Korea, where Netflix, of course, is making tons of stuff and making banner headlines about Squid Game and all the money it's pouring into Korea and all the, the TV and movies it's making and what a great success it is. This person, the president of the Actors Union, wanted to talk to Netflix. Of course, they wanted to talk about residuals, which Netflix isn't interested in discussing. But first, he just wanted to say hello and could not find a phone number for Netflix. Not a single phone number. You go to the websites, you go to the thing, nothing. They had to ask around people, and finally, somebody gave them the private cell phone number of a Netflix exec in Korea. And so he called and texted that person and never got a response. That's how crazy and ridiculous it is, a situation. They can't even get Netflix on the phone. And of course, Netflix outsources their production to local companies, so they are not technically making anything in Korea. It's other companies making it, right. and then they're just licensing it. And if you want to talk mm -hmm. to them because they're the power behind this, you can't, even get, you can't even find a phone number for them. So that's how crazy all this is. But the trades did raise one other question, Sperling. This is our final thing about the strikes, I think. They want to know, will the strikes and the rhetoric involved affect the compensation packages for top execs in Hollywood? Hold on, I'm just going to think about that for a split. No, no, it's not going to affect them at all. No, not at all. What, what I will say is that, you know, because I, I deal with all these earnings calls, whether it's Warner Brothers Discovery or Cinemark, they made $120 million last week or last the, during the second quarter of 2023. Did they make it by not showing movies? They're like, look no, at all the money we saved on employee salaries during the COVID lockdown. That's what David Zaslav would say. Look, we saved all this money on our salaries. It was we great. We didn't have to buy any popcorn. Look at how much <laughs> money we saved. But uh, finally, Sean McNulty over at the Ankler is saying what I have been saying for a long time when they let Apple and Amazon and Netflix into the AMPTP. I said, whoa, you know, guys, 
you you both you all have different agendas. You know, Apple and Amazon are tech companies. They don't need entertainment. They don't need movies or television shows to make their bottom line. But, you know, Warner Brothers does, Sony does, NBC does, you know, Comcast does, and they're in different businesses. So part of the problem and why this strike may last so long is the fact that you have you you have Apple and Amazon basically helping guide these talks and they don't have the same needs or business as as these traditional legacy studios. Uh, you know, Apple, they don't even tell you how many iPhones they sold. You want transparency on, on how many viewers of a particular Ted Lasso episode there were? You're never going to get it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, there's, there's, you know, there, you know, I don't know how deep you have to dive. And some of the studios and streamers make the argument, look, we don't care about those numbers. It's not like a TV show where the ratings leads to ads or a rerun reaches a certain number of audience members and therefore the ads are a certain value. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, and Apple and Amazon have different desires than Max, HBO Max, or Paramount Plus. They just want people to subscribe to Amazon Prime or buy an Apple computer. So they don't care in the same way about ratings. We'll put that in quotes. That's all true. But basically what it comes down to is there are two big numbers, subscribers and churn. You can worry about that. But how many subscribers do you have? And yes, how popular are your shows? You don't have to give us breakdowns into the millisecond like you could and should, and I would demand, but no, there's no big deal about telling the, the industry, the people you're working with, how often a show has been watched. And you can argue you have different desires and needs for all your shows, but basically, if a show's really popular and being watched a lot, it's probably worth more money to you. And when you renew it for more seasons, it's probably more valuable to you. So knowing how, how much in demand it is and how many seasons you promote, probably helps people to say, I deserve more money. So yeah, you got Wednesday and Stranger Things. Yes, there are other shows like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel that aren't as big, but are very valuable to you. That'll be clear too, because you keep renewing it. So subscribers and yes, total streams, or at least the total hours and minutes watched, I think that matters. And that's a perfectly reasonable metric for them to demand. Yeah, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, and I've been saying it for a while, trying to get these tech companies and legacy studios to agree on what the, the new contract should be is going to be difficult. You're right. It's also difficult to create a safe work environment. That's why we've got two news stories. One is about Lizzo. She's being sued by three former employees, two backup dancers from a tour and another one who I think appeared in a music video. They allege all sorts of things like a dance captain repeatedly forcing their religious beliefs on them and forcing everyone to join in a prayer circle. Lizzo pushing them to attend a live sex show in Amsterdam, shaming one of them into touching the breast of one of the dancers. And most bizarrely of all, that Lizzo was implicitly criticizing one dancer for her weight gain. She says, I'm not the villain here. They've all publicly admitted they were told their behavior was inappropriate and unprofessional. I don't know that that's true. Uh, but I do know that if you're in the world of theater, and it looks like sometimes on tours and stuff, Forced to attend a group prayer before each performance sounds like something that I have seen and been like, really? Oh, I don't know that I want that. And I can understand somebody not liking that, but feeling pressured to join in. So it's bizarre to think of Lizzo fat shaming somebody. That's just so head spinning. We'll have to see where there is. But there are already headlines saying, can Lizzo come back? It's like, dude, n nothing has been proven yet. These people are suing. It's more than one person. We don't really know the details yet. 
and maybe some of it is the dance captain rather than Lizzo herself. Maybe she'll have something to learn or apologize for, or maybe she's done nothing wrong. But just because someone makes an accusation, again, we do not say, ah, oh, their career's over. It, it doesn't work that way. If 20 people then come forward and say Lizzo herself was cruel to me, then we'll go, oh, wow, that's looking bad. But yeah, somebody announcing a lawsuit is not, you know, oh, your career is over. It's, you know, come back from what? Nothing's happened yet. Do you think the career is over for Albert Alar? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Well, he, uh, you know, he is the, well, he was the co-executive producer of Days of Our Lives. And I guess there was some complaints that, you know, he was doing things like creating a toxic work environment, groping people, forcibly kissing them. I hate it when that happens uh, at work. Sorry. Uh, I apologize. Sorry. Yeah, I misread you know. the room. Yeah. Now well, we're making also, fun of sexual harassment and we're not. Uh, no. We're on different coasts. So yeah. So yeah. Oh, but they investigated. There was a nine-week investigation, and people said, look, there's no way for us to even complain and raise issues safely. And after nine weeks, they slapped him on the wrist. They gave him a written warning and said, do better, and said, you need some more training. Well, he's been with the show for 20 years, probably not going to change. People were not happy, and more than 25 cast members signed a petition calling on him to be fired and the soap to hire a female director in his place. He is now out. He's replaced by producer Janet Drucker, who's now been elevated to co-executive producer. He used to direct every Friday episode. That was the key episode where you had your cliffhanger ending for the week to draw you back in next Monday. She's now, I believe, going to be doing those Friday episodes. And he said, ah, it's just two people who are complaining about me, really. I'm like, well, 25 people signed a petition publicly. That's a big deal for actors on a show when the co-executive producer has so much power to speak up and say, you know, we're not happy. This has to end. That's kind of what it takes sometimes. So even in the liberal environment of daytime soaps where women should be in charge because they're the audience and they're big top cast members and they're top behind the scenes talent, you still had this stuff going on. So uh, it's, uh, it's depressing a little to a degree, you know, after a two month investigation, like nothing much happened to the satisfaction of other people. But, you know, it's a big deal that they took it upon themselves to step forward. Oh, I can't do big deal, big whoops. I cannot, I cannot give you a softball to big deal, big whoop because we talk, got to talk about streaming, don't we? Well, I was going to say, it sounds like the suits made the right decision here. Yeah, well, hey. high five, high five. That's right. <laughs> We're looking at streaming numbers and hats off to Hollywood Reporter. Variety and Hollywood Reporter list the streaming charts every week because they're, and I like that because they're easier to copy than the ones that are online. Uh, from Nielsen, which one of our readers sent us to, and thank you so much for that. I didn't know about that info being available. But they always skipped the fourth category. There's top, top watch shows, top originals, top acquired, and then there's movies. And for some reason, those two sites never included the movie chart. I don't know why, but finally, The Hollywood Reporter added the movie chart. So now if you come to our website and look at the uh, streaming numbers, you can see all four categories in the same format, easy to watch rather than suddenly three in order. And then the fourth one is this huge sprawling thing that I had to cut and paste from online. So I'm very glad about that. And if you look at the charts, you'll see that the number one show is Suits. It joined Netflix a few weeks ago, or actually uh, like six weeks ago, because we're just seeing the numbers now. And this week, 3.67 billion minutes of Suits were viewed online on Peacock and Netflix. Netflix has really supercharged this show. They've been promoting it huge, at least on my homepage. And guess what? It stars Meghan Markle. <laughs> so, you know, she's brought more audience to Netflix, so they're doing all right for her. 
And friends I know are watching The Lincoln Lawyer. That was watched 1.4 billion minutes the week of July 3rd through July 9th. It takes about a month for us to get info. And those who watch it say that the second season is better than the first. And uh, finally, SWAT is still in the top 10. CBS will like canceled SWAT. Like this is the final season. There was an outcry. They rethought it. They've renewed it for one more season. I don't think it's a full season, but at least it'll give them a way to say, say a good goodbye. It's available on Hulu, Netflix, and Paramount+. Plus. And ever since CBS canceled it, didn't cancel it, it's been huge in the ratings online. People are like, I got to check out this SWAT show. So if you want your show to get supercharged, just say it's canceled. No, we're kidding. It's back. And maybe you'll get your audience. It's worked out for them. It's turned from a show that was a solid ratings earner, the sort of show that makes money syndicated around the world. It's that kind of show to being a big, big deal in streaming. Hey, if that's a big deal, I wonder what you'll think about some of our stories in Big Deal or Big Whoop. Big Deal, Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, I mean, let's face it, it's official. TV watching isn't a communal activity anymore. Gone are the days when everyone watched the evening news or when a hit program in prime time would draw tens of millions of viewers and everyone would talk about it five and a half seconds later or at the water cooler the next day. Instead of water cooler moments, TV watching is now a quiet diversion folks do on their own. In the UK, we have even more proof. The government regulator of broadcasting and communications is a, a group called Ofcom, O-F-C-O-M. And it says viewing is down across the board in every genre and in every way. People still watch TV, sure. But with everything from the BBC iPlayer to other streaming services, they're not doing it in the same numbers or at the same time. In the last decade, broadcast shows that draw 4 million or more have dropped in half. And the number of shows reaching 6 million or more has collapsed more than 80%. Wow. So the shows are much smaller than they were even a decade ago, at least right. in that initial measurement, which I think covers like 30 days. Which, by the way, you know, they were already dropping a decade ago. So just think yeah. about it that way. Now, one big culprit, falling viewership for the, you know, evening news and the big three soaps. Now, the big three soaps in the UK are Coronation Street, EastEnders, and Emmerdale. They're all primetime shows, uh, to remind people, yeah. Yeah, but uh, any way you slice it, viewership is more fragmented than ever. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. I mean, you know, you want that long tail of streamers. You want to know how many people are watching my show over its entire run. You don't care if they watch it 90 days later, not if you're the creator. So Netflix is hyper-focus on the first, now I think it's 45 days or 90 days rather than the first month. Uh, that's good. But, you know, I don't care if people discover my show six months or eight months after it first dropped. If it's being watched now, nine months later, then that's still very helpful news. So I don't need to know what was popular in its first 30 days. I want to know, okay, we released it a year ago and we're about to renew our contracts. How much has it been watched overall? I don't think that's asking too much. But some people are not watching any broadcasting shows. In the UK, one out of five viewers don't watch any broadcast shows in any form in any given week. That means they don't go to BBC iPlayer. They don't watch it live. They don't tape it and watch it later. They just don't watch it in the least. That's concerning. Hello, gorgeous. That's what the producers of the revival of Funny Girl must have said to the arrival of Leah Michelle. When she took to the stage as Fanny Bryce, the faltering musical turned into a must-see ticket on Broadway. And now, 
It has recouped the entire $16.5 million budget just as the show enters its final weeks. The show closes September 3rd, and if you want to see it on Broadway, you kind of have to hurry. It probably won't be back for a long, long time. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal, and it's all credit to Leia Michelle. I think it's one of those, you know, what the revival proved was that this is a very flawed show. But it can be done if you have the absolutely perfect person for it. Uh, the same goes for Pal Joey, which at one point they were going to revive and like, we'll figure out who's going to be Pal Joey later. You're like, no, you don't review, you don't revive Pal Joey or Funny Girl unless you have a person who must be the star of that show. So, you know, don't put the cart before the horse. However, Funny Girl was revived by Michael Mayer, the guy who did the Broadway revival in the UK in 2016 with Sheridan Smith as the star. She did get raves and it did well. She toured with it. Um, and if you know Sheridan Smith, she was a supporting character in a sitcom called The Royal Family. She only appeared in a handful of episodes, but there weren't that many episodes made. And if you've never seen The Royal Family, R-O-Y-L-E, it is one of the subtlest, funniest sitcoms of all time. It's so good. The first two seasons are streaming on Amazon. God knows why season three and the specials are not airing on there as well but you can at least see the first two seasons. They are pitch perfect. If you're a real connoisseur of sitcoms and really smart television, it's, it's marvelous. It's so good. But Funny Girl will be touring starting in September, probably with the well-reviewed standby Julie Benko as the lead. She got great reviews, so if you want to see the show, don't say, well, Leia Michelle isn't in it. Uh, Julie Benko got good reviews too. Um, and there you go. I think it's interesting. Opera superstar. And Putin lover Anna Trebko is suing the Metropolitan Opera, Opera over its firing of her. We talked about this actually right when it happened, uh, you know, uh, way back in, uh, what was it, February of last year. The Russian-born soprano has been a longtime supporter of that country's dictator, Vladimir Putin. But when Russia illegally and unprovoked attacked Ukraine— they met. Uh, the Met decided Netrebko was box office poison. It called on her to denounce Putin, and when she didn't, it canceled her contract. Netrebko already successfully won an arbitration dispute with the Opera House, receiving more than $200,000 for the 13 canceled performances that she was supposed to uh, be featured in. Now she wants compensation for the many upcoming performances in future years that they were kind of discussing, not to mention monies for what she says are the Met's defamatory comments about her that led to other opera houses and the like, staying away from Trebko as well. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. Uh, you know, in our rush to support the right side of Ukraine, you don't also want to see the law being broken or people being treated unfairly. That doesn't really advance your cause. I don't know where we, what we said at the time. I hope I came out on the right end, but it, it seemed a no, little No, we dicey. were conflicted. It's like, I mean, it's at like, the time we- Yeah, we, like you're going to make her make a political statement. I mean, it's one thing to choose not to work with someone. That's it's, one it, decision. Another thing is a morals clause where you can say, well, we found out you're raping children and we really don't want to put you in our TV show. That's okay. Uh, but to say we want you to make this political statement or we were going to fire you seems really un unacceptable. Well, and, th and that's what happened here. Well, we didn't know at the time that they asked her to make a political statement. That's what's coming out in the arbitration, right? Mm. And this lawsuit. I'm not sure about that. I thought there well, was, she had denounced, I think, or somebody did, the invasion, but not necessarily Putin himself or. And that's and, and our conflict was, well, look, she lives in Russia part time and she can't really 
you yeah, know, even asking to, someone to do that is 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 morally questionable since they may put their family and friends at risk. Not that we don't wish everybody would denounce Putin because he's right. a brutal dictator. Uh, we're not saying we love Anna Netrebko. We're not saying everybody has to work with her necessarily. If you find that you you know she's going to be bad for your audience because it's not going to be good business. People don't want to support you know someone who's seen as a, a lover of Putin as she has been pretty actively in the past. So that's understandable. Whether she'll succeed in this lawsuit. Maybe it's a lot more difficult to prove, but people do map out their their careers three, five years in advance in the opera world. So saying they sort of were tentatively agreeing on future stuff, that's that's not exactly, it's not like, oh, maybe we will. It's like, no, they probably just hadn't signed contracts yet, but that is maybe something that she will win. But no matter what, she did correctly probably win, at least morally, uh, for the couple hundred thousand dollars she was due for these canceled performances. I can understand them wishing they didn't have her booked, but, you know, tough. I look at uh, this and think, wow, this is going down exactly like the the judgments have been correct uh, 100% of the way. Like the arbitration, she had a pay or play deal in her contract for $15,000 roughly. You gotta pay. Per performance, you decided not to use her, you gotta pay. Right. Now, you she didn't, didn't have a contract clause. yet. Yeah, you didn't have a contract yet for the future performances, you know, I, I realize that that's the way some of these conversations go, but you didn't have a contract yet. You probably don't have to pay. As far as the defamatory thing, my gut, my, yeah, I'm no legal expert, but my guidance would be as not a legal expert is if there is a defamatory uh, activity, then take it to a civil uh, court and sue for a de- defamation. Well, I, be- I don't believe it's, they're not in a criminal court. So that's no, what no, she's no. Well, doing. Okay. So yeah, sue for defamation. Well, that's, you know, that's what she's doing. She's saying, I lost money because of your defamation. Yeah. Um, but yes, we're not lawyers. We only play them on TV. Uh, uh, what about uh, on Max? Do you play them there? Because Absolutely. That would be the streamer formerly known as HBO. Yes. The streaming service, as you say, formerly known as HBO Max, lost streamers last quarter. Warner Brothers Discovery rebranded the HBO subscription service as simply Max last quarter. They did that in uh, a one-hour meeting and then went to lunch. They were like, "Woo, wow, that job is done. <laughs> that, was, that was a great branding ex- exercise. Uh, total subscribers for HBO Max and Discovery Plus dropped by 1.8 million subscribers to hit 95.8 million. They say, hold on, hold on, hold on. The combined max with all the services combined won't really be counted until the next quarter. Plus, we've got Barbie coming. So Hi, don't, Barbie. Don't be such a Ken. Hi, Ken. Yeah, I mean, we're, we totally have enough subscribers. <laughs> Meanwhile, the boutique label AMC Network offers streaming options like AMC Plus, Acorn, Shudder, Sundance, and the like. It too lost subscribers, some 200,000 to 500,000 in all, depending on how you count them. AMC explained it stopped counting some 300,000 as full paying subscribers because, you know, they, they weren't paying actually, and they weren't full paying subscribers. So they stopped <laughs> counting them that way. Uh, so uh, it really only lost 200,000 people, you know, come on, because when it, it said it had 11.5 million a quarter ago, it kind of really just didn't. So AMC now has 11 million subscribers across its platform, and Warner Brothers Discovery has 95.8 million subscribers worldwide. AMC previously predicted its subscribers would total more than 20 million by 2025. Good luck with that. Big deal or big whoop. You're welcome. I know you love pieces with lots of numbers. So, you know, that was for you, Sperlin. I hope you enjoyed it. The basic thing is that HBO Max and AMC lost streamers. They both had 
explanations for why those subscriber numbers fell or fell even more than you, less than you think they did. Uh, but, you know, it's not great, not good. We'll have to see where they end up next quarter. Buying or selling stock based on one quarter of streamer numbers, and I don't think it's an overall telling fact about streaming in general. However, I tried to find out, does AMC bundle all its services? They've got all these little services, Sundance Now, Shutter, Acorn, AMC Plus. Do they offer them all in one big bundle? I think they should, you know, but uh, I couldn't find it. So something to think about. Well, you know, really, when you look at uh, this particular story, you could look at the Warner Brothers Discovery earnings call. That could have been our inside baseball topic this week because it kind of outlines everything that's going on in this industry. You've got- Do tell. Well, you've got streaming, not making any money for the legacy players. Yes, Netflix made $1.5 billion in, in- That's more than us. Or maybe, yeah, basically they made money over at Netflix. Whereas, you know, Disney Plus and Max, they're not making money for these legacy players. Uh, the only money they're making, as we discussed, is basically saving money by not making, you know, any content, uh, which, you know, Zaslav pointed out. And, you know, Zaslav said that 30% of those watching television at any given time are watching a Warner Brothers Discovery Network. There's only one problem with that. Mm-hmm. That is a declining figure every month that 30%, that, that, <laughs> that main 100% number goes down. So your advertising is looking atrocious. Uh, well, so he was only talking about ad supported platforms? Well, he was talking about, well, yeah, they're all ad support. Yes, that is correct. He was well, not, not talking about they're not the all. You could be on demand or you could be you no, know. he was talking about the linear Oh, you could television. be downloading a, a movie? Oh, okay. All right. He was what talking about, about Windows when, and he said stuff about Windows. Right. Uh, but the, so there's so much that, that he said in that one earnings call. That, and he also even said, hey, about that strike, you know, look, uh, we have uh, our models uh, have modeled out the strike. We've already taken account for all the way through September. So nothing to worry about, <laughs> to, which, to which every analyst went, only through September, you might want to sharpen your pencils, boys and girls, because you know what? You're going to have to redo those models. Thank you for being gender inclusive. And it's time for Inside Baseball, isn't it? Yes, it is time for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And more importantly, we will tell you that this segment was totally produced by artificial intelligence. Thank you, ChatGPT. Exactly. Well, actually, it wasn't uh, because one of the key bones of contention between SAG-AFTRA and even even the WGA uh, and the AMPTP, those again are the studios and the streamers and the networks, is artificial intelligence. This is what role it will play and what rights will actors have and, and writers have moving forward. Does a script have to be written by a human? Here's a look at some of the issues that everybody is discussing, especially on the actor side, because they have some actual you know, real life anecdotal evidence that yes, AI is being used in some way, shape or form. What's the first example? Well, background actors, and I can't remember on what movie, I think it was The Flash. Yeah. They were pushed to do scans. They showed up for a scene and they said, okay, great. Now go into that room over there for 15 minutes and you're going to be scanned. To which people said, wait, what? What what do you mean scanned? What do you mean turn this way, turn that way, (laughs) smile, look sad, look angry. Okay. What do you mean I'm done? What? Mm-hmm. Well, no, they went on to do their background work, but they wanted to have a scan of them. So Variety did a good feature on background actors being ordered to do a full body scan on the set of The Flash or go home. You want to work today? You got to do this scan. They were given a blanket contract that gave away all their rights in perpetuity. Uh, 
Even though the studios say that they claim by SAG-AFTRA that uh, they want to do this and scan everybody and, and get rid of back. It's outrageous, uh, even though they've arguably already tried to do it. Uh, but we'll get more to the why and the how later. But that's a good article. We linked to it about The Flash. Like, they're already saying, hey, you want to make a day's pay on the background? We get to scan you. What else yeah, is happening? Number two, do actors and writers really hate AI? Are they like, I don't ever want to see it ever? No, I mean, look, they understand that, like, for instance, uh, remember Rogue One? Grand yes. Moff Tarkin. Well, obviously, the actor who played that in Star Wars back in 1977 is no longer with us. Uh, and so they, you know, kind of created his performance out of whole cloth. Harrison Ford in the new uh, Indiana Jones movie. AI was used to bring him back. Well, de-aging, yeah. Right. Um, so nobody wants to ban it necessarily, but they want like informed consent, for instance. Like, hey, if you're going to do it, like, let me know ahead of time. Don't just be like, no, you're now starring in this commercial. We get to do it. Right. And obviously active actors like Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren and the like will benefit a lot from AI or rather their estates will do so. And right. it's something that if I was an actor, if I was Toby, Mag- not Toby McGuire, if I was uh, uh, a young actor today, Timothy Chalamet, I would totally get a full scan done like they did for ABBA, uh, me doing whatever so that they could have that in storage. And then maybe down the road when we want to make use of it, it'll be there and ready for you. Or or if you need me as a younger person, hey, there I am. But background actors are the least protected members of the union. They used to have their own union. And typically they're always the least looked after, the sort of the bottom of the barrel. But, uh, you know, uh, with AI, they could be out of work in a decade. There are 160,000 members of SAG-AFTRA, and one in five, 20%, like 32,000 of them, have worked as a background actor in the past year. So that means a lot of actors do this a lot of the time, right? 20% of their membership is doing it all the time in the past year. So it really matters. And they say they're not the bottom of the barrel. SAG-AFTRA says they are the canaries in the coal mine. What happens to them is going to happen to everybody else down the road, and we need to pay attention to that. So uh, that's, uh, you know, it's important to do. And they say, well, look, the studios say, well, we've offered informed consent. You know, SAG-AFTRA says we want informed consent, meaning you can't just blanket, you know, right away all your rights. The studios say, well, we've already offered that. We're allowing informed consent. If you're there, you want the work, and then we ask you to sign a separate agreement for us to be able to use your scan in certain ways. And they say they agreed to this verbally on July 12th. SAG-AFTRA says, we're not happy with how you're describing this and the terms of it and the individual pressure that even a background actor might be under because, of course, they have no leverage. And they want to limit, in general, what can be done with AI for background actors so they make sure these jobs do not disappear because they're crucial to the work of actors because 20% of them are doing this work with every year. So it's some of the only work people can get as they wait for their big break. We've always had AI and other stuff done to fill out massive crowd scenes for battles or full stadiums where the real acts, background actors are in the front rows and everybody else is duplicated. That's always happened. Nobody wants that to go away, but we need new rules because it's going to become more valuable than ever. And if they don't step up now, they'll be able to duplicate these people so well, they're not going to need them on the next movie. So yeah, you might get informed consent. We can use you in any movie we want. <laughs> and so well, the next and the movie, informed they consent they want is when you do it, you need to let me know every time you use me kind of a thing. And pay me and I get compensation. Like, right, exactly. Yeah, but that's, that's what the actors want. The students are like, informed consent means you know we're going to do this, so sign it away. 
Uh, well, and, and, and and you know, royalties came from uh, the you know one of the one of the earliest uses of it uh, for performance was the network orchestras on radio. So they used to have to do everything live, and so the violin player, the clarinet player, they'd have to be there at eight p.m. for the East Coast live radio show and play live with the live radio show. But then they figured out a way to record the eight p.m. show and play it at eight p.m. on the Pacific. Time, in the Pacific time zone, and they said, okay, uh, okay, musicians, you're free to go home. We're not going to use you for two performances. Well, the musician said, wait, but you kind of are. You're using me for the second performance. So they wanted to be paid a, a portion for that performance. That's how they got those kinds of uh, royalties and those kinds of royalty payments. Yes, it's very nice indeed. And, and that's why, you know, when we got residuals, that was from the last historic strike, and that's going to happen now. And when you think about it, it opens up all sorts of ideas. For example, studios have already scanned people. What rights do they have? One actor suggested, you know what? In our deal, we should say all those previous scans, delete them. You don't have the rights to them. You're not going to have rights to our images in perpetuity. We're going to start fresh now. So glad you had that for use for any individual movie. You said, what happens if something happens and an actor dies or something? We need to do something on this particular project. Fair enough. But those projects are over, so you got to delete everything, and we're going to have a fresh start on all of our rights going ahead in the future. You know, because we don't want it to be the death of the background actor. Well, and look, some jobs do die off. I mean, nobody's making wagon wheels anymore, and nobody's making buggy whips anymore. So sometimes jobs. Right, but writers' rooms and writers who are able to go on a set and actors who can pay some part of their bills by being a background actor is crucial if you want those people to gain experience, get their foot in the door, see how a set works, see how a TV show works, so they can work their way up the chain. So yeah, you could get rid of background actors, but is that a good idea when 20% of all SAG-AFTRA members do background work every year and most of them still can't pay the bills? Maybe not. Maybe not. But you know, uh, jobs like that aren't the only things dying off. We have people who have died, like director William Freakin, who I've met a couple times. Uh, he was married to uh, Sherry Lansing, actually, since 1991, but probably better known for many of his movies. Uh, you know, what is your favorite movie that he directed? We have The Exorcist, The French Connection, Cruise In, To Live and Die in L.A., fantastic movie. Uh, just so There's, many good movies. Well, not for me. There's only one film of his that would make my best of a year list for them, and that's The French Connection. I think that's his claim to fame. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm not absolutely. a huge fan of The Exorcist. Uh, I think it has a lot of jump cuts to scare, cheap, cheap jump cuts to scare you. I watched it on Halloween for the first time uh, a number of years ago. I was kind of excited, like never seen it. I'm like, oh, it's Halloween. I'm going to watch it. I was like, eh, that didn't really work for me. Maybe I need to see it on the big screen. There are some good iconic moments and performances. But I don't love it. It's not on my best of the year list. I think To Live and Die in L.A. is a little overrated. It's okay. but no, no. And a lot of his other movies, I think, are bad. So uh, that's not a very nice thing to say. But it is important to note, The Exorcist, along with The Godfather, really helped launch the blockbuster movie trend where movies made a lot of money fast. And that went into overdrive later with Jaws, right. where wide releases helped that happen more than ever. So those movies are really key to Hollywood history. And he deserves credit for that. I actually fact-checked the Peter Biskin book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which is about Hollywood in the 1970s. And not to speak ill of the dead, but William Friedkin, 
I really grew to like not like him. I was like, I'm glad I'm not interviewing him because the less successful his movies became, the more pompous he became. So, it was, I, you know, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but the times yeah. I did meet him were in development meetings. And I was like, oh my God, does this guy know when the French connection was made? Because it's not, it wasn't last year. That was, you're only as good as your last movie, okay? That was not your last movie. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah God, God bless him. You know, he, he left his mark on Hollywood. He did some really good documentaries early on. He, he got his break with a Sonny and Cher movie. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm sure Sherry Lansing doesn't listen to this podcast. You know, I'm not sure why, but she never returns my phone calls. So, you know, God forbid, if you knew him and liked him, well, you know, wonderful. You know, let him rest in peace. So should Broadway veteran Walter Charles, who died at 78. If you read his credits, you might wonder, why the heck haven't I heard of Walter Charles before? He got his break in the original production of Grease, went on to a lead role in the musical 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Okay, that one closed after four days, but it was smooth sailing after that for decades. He appeared in classic shows and revivals like the original production of Sweeney Todd, the original Cats, the original La Caja Foal, the original Big River, a really good musical I wish they would revive, not to mention Aspects of Love, Me and My Girl, a great revival of Kiss Me Kate starring Brian Stokes Mitchell and Maren Maisie, and his final Broadway bow in the Sutton Foster revival of Anything Goes in 2011. Woo! That's a great career. But the truth is that Charles is a journeyman actor, which in my case is a compliment. That's what I mean by that. He wasn't a big star and he didn't have huge leading roles in all these shows. He made his career in theater and that ain't easy. So he deserves credit. He was a replacement in the original production of Grease. He was in the chorus in Cats and a replacement in multiple other shows. In Big River, he played numerous smaller roles and in the ensemble. But you know what? Happily... He was in the opening night cast of Anything Goes and played the captain for more than a year until pretty much right before the show ended. So that was cool to see. Obviously, he's a member or was a member of the Theater Acting Union, which is different from SAG-AFTRA, but he presumably was part of that union as well because he had a handful of TV and film credits, including two appearances in the franchises of Law and Order as required by law. So when you're wondering who people are striking for in any part of the entertainment biz, it's artists like Walter Charles. And his wife, Leslie Thompson, posted this on social media. It's kind of sweet. My beautiful husband and friend passed away today. The last piece of music that I played for him was The Lark Ascending by Vaughn Williams. Walter Charles is free. I thought wow. That was rather sweet. Yeah. So, and if that doesn't make you run out and say, what is The Lark Ascending? I want to play that. Well, that's what I did. It's a nice sentimental piece of music. Well, and uh, you have somebody here named Michael Boyd who. Uh I guess, is a theater director. That's right. In the UK, he died at 68. He was the head of the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, starting in 2003. He replaced artistic director Adrian Noble when, when the RSC was in very, very shaky ground. And his nine-year stint was extremely controversial, but he ultimately he rescued the RSC, put it on firm financial footing and very firm creative footing. Now, Noble had already begun severing ties with that company's home in London, the concrete bunker called the Barbican, which is a nightmare, uh, Boyd doubled down on that and made Stratford-upon-Avon the official home of the RSC, which makes sense, but outraged everybody who's in London. They're like, why are you leaving London? How dare you? But he rebuilt the finances and did eye-catching, critically acclaimed programming, such as one season where they partnered with other theatrical companies to stage every single Shakespearean play, long poem, and sonnet. 
another season proved a triumph when he himself directed all eight plays in the history cycle. He did that over four seasons, but then they mounted them all at once in one year over a four-day period with an ensemble to worldwide attention and praise. And finally, he demolished the outdated theatrical venues at Stratford, again to outcries of barbarism. But the new venues are now universally praised and even received architectural awards. So a really tough transition for the RSC, but Michael Boyd deserves a lot of the credit. And he died of cancer, so if you want to honor him, go for your annual checkup. Make sure you don't miss that. Now tell us what happened when you glanced over my, my notes for film composer Carl Davis. What happened well, when you read them? <laughs> okay, for some reason, I saw all of these, these uh, movie titles, and I read the, the last paragraph first, which was, per The Hollywood Reporter, Davis went on to create music for such silent films as D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, Harold Lloyd's Safety Last, Douglas Fairbanks' The Thief of Baghdad. And I think I got about as far as that. And I went, how old was this guy? Because <laughs> like, like those are all like 1920s movies. 1910s. Intolerance is 1916. So here's what happened. Movie music maestro Carl Davis died at 86. He, was, he wasn't alive when, when uh, Intolerance came out, but he was famed for his work on documentaries for TV miniseries, and movies, but he did his best work, perhaps, writing music for movies decades after the films first came out. He worked on the stage, writing music for both the RSC and the National in London. We just talked about them. Then he tackled the massive task of writing music for the 26-hour documentary TV series World at War. I remember that in syndication on the weekends for years when I was a kid, along with Victory at Sea. It really made his name and linked him to Richard Rogers, who did the stirring music for Victory at Sea 20 years before that. Now, he went on to write music for the famed British satirical show That Was the Week That Was. Think of it as the British Daily Show. Uh, the landmark 1995 TV adaptation of Pride and Prejudice starring Colin Firth and movies like The French Lieutenant's Woman. But it was another documentary that changed his life. He was brought on by filmmakers Kevin Brownlow and David Gill to write music for their 13-hour project, Hollywood, a celebration of the American silent film. They said, we want you to score this 13-hour project with lots of, uh, lots of clips from old movies. And they said, oh, while you're at it, we need you to write a new score for our restoration of Abel Gantz's five-hour silent classic, Napoleon. He's like, okay. <laughs> so that's 18 hours of music. And once he did that, he started a second career writing new scores for classic silent movies like Intolerance and Safety Last, The Thief of Baghdad, Greed, and so on. So a lot of the time was when you're listening to an old silent movie, you're probably hearing a new score by Carl Davis. Which makes sense because, you know, music is going to sound a lot better than something <laughs> from 1910 that was probably well, recorded no, they on. Well, they aren't always. Well, often movies didn't have an original score. They were just performed live at the right. theater by an organist. So there was no score to use from those days. You know, it didn't exist. It was just improvised at the time. But then when they start putting stuff out on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray and Laserdisc and all that, or streaming them, then they say, oh, we need a score. And so a lot of people do scores live. You go to Ebert Fest in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, They'll often do a silent film with a, new, a live performance of a score like by the Alloy Orchestra. But I have to say, I was intrigued by Hollywood, a celebration of the American silent film, this 13-hour project. I thought, that sounds awesome. Can't find it streaming anywhere. So stuff falls through the cracks. Somebody posted on YouTube illegally. No, I didn't say that. But I wish somebody would make it available legally, just like I wish they would Napoleon. 
I remember when Siskel and Ebert reviewed a revival of Napoleon. You need three screens and a live orchestra to do it justice. It's like in this triple screen presentation, most of the movie's on two screens, but on big battle scenes, suddenly you need three huge screens, one next to the other, and that's how they do Napoleon properly. I've been dying to see it all my life. It was almost revived, but then COVID struck, and I'm still waiting to see that movie in person for the first time. Well, you know what? You, you don't need three screens to, to listen to our show each week. You just need No, you maybe. just need three rest breaks. Yeah, three bathroom breaks. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I don't want to say bathroom, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> bathroom, the dirty word of this particular... <laughs> um, you know what? Uh, hey, don't miss a show. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace. I want to say Stitcher, but they're going away. Spotify, uh, you know what? I'm trying to think of all of the other places. Uh, tune in, I think you can get it. I, all, anywhere you download podcasts is usually where you can find us and where you can rate and review us, at least in some of those podcast aggregators. Uh, it does help us out when you rate and review us, by the way. Uh, that information can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find Ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. A big shout out to all the fax machines who leave us uh, voicemails at that particular number. Uh, Twitter uh, is our handles at, at Showbiz Sandbox on the Twitter, and which is now called X. I don't even know what to call it anymore. What do we, what do, we do when we post something we, there? We, we, call it, we call it the streaming the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Okay. All right. Uh, Facebook. We're on Facebook, Showbiz Sandbox. Just search for Showbiz Sandbox and you can find our page and you can like us there. Again, all that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting for us. Michael, what is it this week? This week it's wangchung.com. Oh, that's, you know that's a callback. Why is that? Well, because they did the score for William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. It's one of their best... Uh, works i would say they have some catchy songs and that was a great uh, a great score that they did it's a good movie it just didn't quite make my best of the year list but just wanted one more shout out to william friedkin you know rest in peace now if you can't find any of michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on wangchung.com which probably is taken no uh, it is by wang chung and they're touring next year they're going on an 80s cruise so in february march if you want to See Wang Chung, you can join a cruise and hear lots of great 80s bands. And then everybody can Wang Chung tonight. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, you know what? You can find some of Michael's uh, coverage of the entertainment industry on michaelgiltz.com. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>